Good morning, everybody. Nice to see you today. Our key scripture this morning comes from Romans chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up there today. And I'll be reading that for you here this morning. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives for God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness for sin shall no longer be your master. Because you are not under the law, but under grace. There were some people visiting church one Sunday. And they came up to me afterwards, and I had never met them before. And they they asked me if they could meet with me in private. And that always makes me worry a little bit. Uh, Anytime anyone asks me if they can meet with me in private, it, it makes me start to sweat a little, wondering what is going uh, to happen. And they took me, uh, we, I took them, I should say, into my office and we sat down and talked and they proceeded to describe to me something in their life that they felt like was not really a Christian thing, but they didn't want to stop doing it. And so they asked me if we come to church here and this is the kind of thing that we're involved in, is it okay if we stay involved in this thing? And I said, well is this a trick question? Like, I'm not really sure how to answer. I'm not sure how to answer this question. So what I told them was, look, I I understand where you're coming from, and I understand, you know, sort of what you're talking about, but why don't we do this? Instead of deciding right now whether you can or cannot do this thing and whether you can or cannot be here, why don't you just come to church and we'll study the Bible about this subject, and then we'll see where God leads us on this subject. And they're saying, well, you're saying then that it's not okay. And I'm like, that's not what I said. What I said was, I want you to be here. And let's discover what God wants for you together. I never saw them again. I never saw them again. I don't know if you've ever had this conversation about God with someone else before, but it goes something like this. God made me just the way that I am. And if he made me just the way that I am, then why would he want me to change anything about myself? I mean, doesn't God love me and didn't God create me purposely? Let me show you the scriptures about how God created me purposely. If God made me this way, why would he want to change anything about me? And to that question, no matter what it is, my answer is the same to everyone. God wants to change all of us. God wants to change all of us, but... There's a more important question that we have to attach to that question of why does God want to change us, and it's this. How does God want us to change? How does God want us to change? In what ways does he want us to change? And before we answer that question, we need to pause for another second 
Because the church has not always done a very good job of answering that question. Because we have most often talked about change in terms of behavior. You stop doing this, you start doing that, and that is the change that God wants in you. And the church has long been built on a platform of behavioral changes. Christianity looks like this, but if you do these kinds of things, then you don't fit in. Being a Christian is very much about the things you do and the things that you refrain from doing, and this has been so much of an emphasis that at times in our history, we have required people to change their lives before they can even become a part of the community. You have to change these things about you before you can be a part of us. Live right first and then become part of the church. But Paul here wants to make something painfully clear. One, there, is, there are clear and distinct behavioral differences between someone who lives for Jesus and someone who just lives. But what's important to Paul is not the behavior, but why you change in the first place. The difference is not just the actions that separate someone who knows Jesus from someone who doesn't. The real difference is in the why. So what is the why? Well, as Christians and followers of Jesus, we know something in our heads and our hearts. At one time, we were trapped by our sin, our inability to follow God. And sin is all about limitations. It is all about what we are not capable of doing. It is all about our failures. It is all about the distance between God and us. It is all about our loss. But when we met Jesus, Jesus did something amazing, you see. He offered us new life and freedom from our sin. When we committed ourselves to Jesus, we who were put to death through baptism joined in his death. And he says that the life that we had before was crucified with Jesus. Who we were before we met Jesus is dead. Who we, met bef- who we were before we met Jesus is dead. And we are raised to new life just as Jesus was raised to new life. And this new life that we have is no longer under the control of sin and limitations and failure and death. You've already died. You can't die again. You've already died. You can't die again. So you have a new life. And this new life, you live for God not out of obligation, but out of the overwhelming freedom and love and grace that you now have from sin and death. And you, therefore, can choose to not offer yourself to those old things anymore. Because you are free. Your heart, your mind have been set free. God does change us. But he doesn't change what we do. He changes who we are. And when who we are changes, what we do changes. And therefore, if we have ever communicated that faith in Christianity and Jesus is about living some sort of more moral life, we have communicated incorrectly. Because living in Jesus is not about living a more moral life. It is about living a victorious life. We are free, and this is why we do what we do. It's why we make the choices that we make, and the life we live, we no longer live as slaves. We live for the God who has set us free. Amen? Amen. All right. It's time for our kids to go to Children's Church and Nursery and other such things. All right. Um, I asked the kids earlier, and I asked you too, uh, how many decisions do you think we make every day? Now, that's a pretty difficult question to answer, right? How many decisions we make every day, because we make so many. And some of those decisions, of course, are really big decisions, and some of them are small because every day we make all different kinds of decisions. 
for example, if I were to ask you right now, uh, do you want me to turn the heater up or down, what would you say? Raise your hand if you would say up. We've got a few. Raise your hand if you would say down. All right. Raise your hand if you would stay. Okay. See, now all of you made a decision right there. All of you made a decision. But what went into you making that decision? Because uh, you made it pretty quick, right? You, you, made that, you made that decision pretty quick. So what are the factors that went into it? Well, are you sweating? That might be one, right? Like, <laughs> do you feel like you need, you know, some sort of IV or something? Cause, uh, or, you know, do you have goosebumps on your arm? Or are you just, like, perfectly comfortable? Now, here's the thing about that particular decision. None of us actually took the time to weigh those different things, right? It was just a matter of, am I hot or am I cold or am I okay? And we made that decision in just the blink of an eye. Some choices or decisions that we make, we make automatically relying on mental shortcuts that our, breaks have de- our brains, not our brakes, have developed over the years to help us choose the best course of action. So, for example, if I were to ask you, and I know what you're going to do with this already, but I'm just going to go ahead and walk down this road. If I were to ask you chocolate or strawberry, what would you say? Raise your hand if you would say chocolate. Raise your hand if you would say strawberry. Raise your hand if you're fighting the urge to say what you would really want. That's right. I know you people. I know you people. So, again, is this something that we really think about when we're making that decision or choice? Well, not really. I mean, for one thing, it's it's not really a choice of great consequence, right? I mean, unless you're allergic to strawberries or allergic to chocolate. The choice isn't one of great consequence, but we already know when we sat down here which one we prefer, right? You already know which one that you like best. So there are those kinds of decisions where we are making a choice or we're doing something and we're just hardly even processing all of the information that is coming to us. But then there are other decisions that we feel almost incapable of making because of the weight or gravity of that decision. So should I turn the heater up or down is a lot different of a choice or decision than should I leave the job I have to go somewhere else? Should I marry this person or that person, right? Should I do these different kinds of things? Now, there are several factors that can limit the ability to make a decision that's a good one, okay? Because we don't always make good decisions. Am I right? right? We don't always make good decisions. We don't always make them. Um, so sometimes it's, it's not completely our fault, too, that we make bad decisions. Um, so sometimes, you know, we don't have all the information or we're running under a deadline or we have limited resources or whatever we can do. I mean, how many of you have ever made a decision just because it was time and you had to, right? And you just make a choice, you make a decision, and it's like, it's here, here's the deadline, I have to choose, fine. And this is kind of how we do it, too. It's not a, this is going to be great, or no, I don't want that. It's more like, fine, here's my choice. I will go ahead and do this. Um, when, when we, um, but what I find really fascinating about decision-making is that we form opinions and choose actions via these things that are going on in our heads And these things that are going on in our heads are influenced by all different kinds of things, such as biases that we already have, or emotions that we may be feeling, or memories of something else. And it makes me think that for the thousands of decisions we make every day, they are way more complex than we're giving them credit for being. They're way more complex than we're giving them credit for being. But we can make some decisions really quickly because we, have, we don't know this. We don't, it's not something we're consciously doing, but we have trained ourselves to make this decision. For example, you go to a restaurant and you order the food and you get sick from the food that you eat. All right? So you go home and you get sick from the food that you eat. So a friend calls you up two weeks later and says, hey, let's go and eat at this restaurant. What do you say? No. no. Why? Because you got sick. So you have, one, you've had a bad experience with this thing, which means you don't want to do it again, but it has also created a bias in your mind against that particular place. 
Why have you eaten there a hundred times and I've never gotten sick? Really? Because I ate there once. And you don't want to see pictures of what happened. It was ugly, right? So we have all of these things that are in our minds and, and, and they are constantly uh, influencing the kinds of choices and the decisions that we make. And, and we weigh the benefits and the costs of our choice and then we have to go forward and make a decision with whatever it is that we're doing. What happens though when you are presented with two options that seem equally good but you can only choose one? What do you do? Flip a coin, right? Pick a number between 1 and 10. <laughs> what is it, right? So these are, well, that's, I don't know that I would recommend that, but, you know. Um, so when we're, when we're presented with things that seem equally good, we have to spend a little bit more time evaluating those choices, right? Just in general. So uh, we can use a mixture of intuition or rational thinking or looking at the factors and all these different sort of things um, to decide what it is that we're going to do. But here's, I, I found this kind of interesting. If you'd bring up the next slide, and I don't know how well you'll be able to see it. But this is, a, and this stuff is all over the interwebs, by the way. If you ever want to Google uh, decision making, you'll find a million different things. But this is how this one, uh, this one organization breaks it down. So they say, first, you have to identify the decision. Smart move. I have a decision I have to make. Okay? Uh, number two, you gather information about that decision. So you find out as much about it as you can. Number three, you identify alternatives. Are there other things that might be just as good or that that I, can, that I can go with. Number four, you weigh the evidence. What does it look like is true, what I should do and what I shouldn't do. Number five, you choose among alternatives. Number six, you take action. Number seven, you review your decision. Now, I don't know about you, but I cannot really think of a time in my life where that's how I made a decision. I'm not spontaneous. Those of you who know me know it's not like, but I can't, I don't know that I can ever like, that I've ever broken it down like that. And there's a reason for that. It's because a lot of the decisions that we've made or a lot of the things that we do, there are other things that are also informing them, right? So like my emotions or how I'm feeling or, or what's going on here, those things or relationships or all these different things, they all pile on top of it. So decision making though, this is how, <laughs> this is how you, next time uh, uh, you are going out with a friend to a restaurant or something else, uh, feel free to use this decision making matrix to help you decide uh, which place you should go and you will come to uh, some sort of choice and eat somewhere that night, I'm confident. Um, but here's what, here's what I want to say about this and I, I know I've already said it but let me repeat myself. <clears throat> Decision-making is something that we do all the time. All the time. And sometimes we're thoughtful about it and sometimes we're not. Some situations require us to be thoughtful while others don't. Some situations we have been pre-programmed by experience we've had or all these different things to make quick decisions. And other decisions are so hard because of what is at stake or because they both look so good or because of whatever it is. Now Paul as he's writing to the young Christians at the church in Ephesus, he wants them to understand something. And what he wants them to understand is both simple and just so complex. And he wants them to understand this. You have a choice as to what kind of life you live. You have a choice. You have decisions that you make all the time, every day, and those decisions that you make can put you down one path or another. And you can choose to live a life that follows the example of Jesus Christ, or you can choose to live a life that shows you don't know Jesus Christ. But you have the ability to choose. 
And this is where he takes us in Ephesians chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, open them up right now. We're going to be in um, verse 17 through the end of the chapter. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 17. Now there's a question that should sort of come to our minds, all right? And so let's just lay this out here really quick. We can choose whether we live a life that glorifies, that is modeled after Jesus, or we can choose to live a life that shows that we don't know who Jesus is, right? But what do you already know about that choice? Just choosing to live a life that is modeled after Jesus, is that a simple thing to do? No. Because if this is what you choose to do, to live a life that is modeled after Jesus, then what does that mean? That in all the decisions, all the choices, all the things you do every single day, what should be a factor in that decision? Right. And does that, on the surface, does that feel like something we can accomplish? So... Does that feel like something we can accomplish? We know that we know that we can do it, right? That if we were to take every single decision and choice and to break it down, that we could ask ourselves, well, does this sound like Jesus or not sound like Jesus? And then we could study the Bible over every decision that we make, right? And and so but to me, when I think about the process in that way and we go back to those steps, it seems crazy, right? It seems crazy the amount of detail that I'm gonna have to spend trying to figure out if this is what God wants me to do. It's, and, it's, and it's a little bit overwhelming to think about it in those terms. But this gets to a problem with us, okay? And, and it's, how, it's how we look at the whole idea of living like Jesus, okay? We think living like Jesus means changing behavior. And we're wrong. We're wrong. Now, let's look at what Paul has to say about this here in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 19. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. Okay, now, Paul wants us to know where all of this starts, because he's going to start talking to this group of people about what it means to live like as a Christian. But he starts at a specific place, and I want you to notice something. What does he not do right off the bat? He does not make a list of the kinds of things you should do and the kinds of things you shouldn't do. Instead, he introduces a principle to them. He introduces a principle to them, and this is the first principle. You have to learn to think differently. You have to learn to think differently. He doesn't start out by telling them, do this and don't do that. And there's a distinct reason why, if he had started at this point with do this and don't do that, then the exercise becomes this sort of thing where, I'm, well, I'm going to do the right things and I'm not going to do the wrong things. But he knows that that is not where change starts. Change doesn't start in us having a list of the kinds of things we're supposed to do. Change starts instead in your head and in your heart. It starts in your head and in your heart. In other words, the way that you think, literally, the way that you see the world, the way that you make decisions, all of that changes when you come to know Jesus. Let me say that one more time. The way that you think, the way that you see the world, the way that you make decisions, all changes once you come to know Jesus. You have to ask yourself different questions, and you have to look at things in different ways. And Paul spells out this distinction for them by talking about Gentiles and describing in the negative the way that Gentiles think. Now, 
if you remember from the earlier parts of Ephesians, uh, when Paul is trying to draw this group together, he talks about how the Jews and Gentiles are, are no longer a thing, how they're now one. So when he's talking about Gentiles here, he's not trying to make the point of these were uh, the, the Jews versus those who were not Jews. Instead, he's trying to make a much more basic point, which is there are people who know God and there are people who do not. So in this case, the Gentiles are those who do not know God and therefore do not know Jesus. So, how does someone who does not know God think? And he gives us the answer if you want to look there again. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. So, where does the problem start? Someone tell me. <laughs> We're going to get there next week. <laughs> next week is sex. And Lorena is so embarrassed right now. I can't tell you how embarrassed Lorena is. Um, Okay, oh, their minds are closed, but why are their minds closed? Because their hearts are hard. Okay, so here's, here's the starting point, okay? The real problem is this. The real problem is this. Their hearts are hard, okay? And because their hearts are hard, what has happened to their minds? It says, it says here, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. So understand this. This is, an, this is an interesting concept. Their hearts are closed against God, which makes them ignorant, which means they don't know any better. But they can't learn any better because their hearts are hardened against God. And until, until their heart changes, they cannot learn to think differently and therefore their actions have their actions change. Do you see it? you see it? Their heart has to change. The change in their heart changes the way they think. The way they think changes what they do. But they're not capable of it because they are closed off to God. And being closed off to God means that they make any choice and any decision and do anything they want to do. Anything they want to do. Why? Because they're not asking themselves, is this for God or not? They are simply following their own impulses and their own needs and their own wants. Look at it this way. We can't just change what we do if we don't understand why we're making the choices that we're making. And we can't understand the choices that we're making if we don't understand the way that we think. And we can't change the way that we think if we don't understand what's in our hearts. It's completely backwards to do it the other way. So what is Paul telling them then? He says, look, living this life as a Christian is not just about doing this or not doing that. Living life as a Christian starts where? Inside of you. And your changing has to th your thinking has to change. The way that you see the world, the way that you do things has to change. But it changes even that changes from inside of you and in your heart. And this tells us something very very important about living for Jesus. Okay? Living for Jesus doesn't happen by accident. It, it just doesn't. It takes effort. It takes effort to live the kind of life that Jesus lived. But it also tells us that just changing what you do is not enough. In fact, it's not really even the point. It is a product of what is already going on inside of you. And if it's not going on inside of you, the product is not going to be what God wants anyway. 
You hear me on that? Good. Let's move on. Verse 20. So he's just talked about the way that the Gentiles think, and he says, That, however, is not the way of life you, you learned. When you heard about Christ and were taught in, in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your mind. And to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Okay, so he's reinforcing here that we have to think differently. But how is that, like, how is that starting to happen? He says, well, you were taught the truth about Jesus. And what is the truth about Jesus, church? Oh, and take an E here. Come on. What is the truth about Jesus? That he's the son of God? That he loves us? That he died, was buried, and was resurrected? And that through him we have victory? This is the truth of Jesus. That who we were before, as he said in Romans chapter 6, that the old part of us is dead and that we have a new life in him. This is the truth about Jesus. They have heard this thing, that the old you is gone, the new you is here. And so he reminds them, he tells them, in regards to your former way of life, put that away. Because the way you used to live, whose voice did you follow? Yours. And so you made decisions how? You did what you wanted to do and what you thought was best for you and what you wanted or how you felt at the time. You, that's how you made decisions. You listened to that voice. But, in, but now you are going to be made new in the attitude of your mind. And I love that phrase. Okay, I love that phrase. The attitude of your mind. Have you ever thought of the way you think having an attitude. The way you think has an attitude. It looks at things in certain ways. The way you process information, the way that you see things. And so I want you, this is, this is wonderful. This is good stuff right here, okay? Um, we have to learn to think with a more open mind when we come to know the love of God in Jesus. You hear that? We need to think with a more open mind. Now listen, people have misunderstood this about us because we don't do it very well. They think that when we come to know Jesus, we think with what? A closed mind. That we stop thinking. That we stop asking questions and we stop doing things. But understand, what Paul is trying to tell us here, it's like this. In your old life, you lived inside a cardboard box. And all of your processing and all of your thinking happen inside of this cardboard box. And you look up to the sky for answers, and what do you see? The bottom of a cardboard lid. But when you come to know Jesus, guess how your thinking changes? The lid comes off the box, and you see the sky. You, you hear me? Like God, when we come to know him, removes the limits from us. We were slaves to sin, slaves to death, controlled in the old life. But in Jesus, we are set free. So the limits that were on us are not on us anymore. And we can't think like we're still inside the box. We have to think bigger than that. Because we have a God who is beyond the limitations that we used to live under. Now we have possibility and we have freedom where before there was only, there was only sin and death. And so our hearts and our minds have to be open to the ever wider range and imagination of what God can do in this world and in our lives. As Christians, we're not rule followers, we're explorers. We're discovering. We have a God of infinite possibility going ahead of us. 
And the only thing that's going to restrict that infinite possibility is us. Thinking like we always have. Doing what we've always done. Living in the same old box. You put off the old self and you put on the new self. You live a new lifestyle. You think differently. You change your clothes and, and I love that image and I hate it because, you know, for us, it can feel pretty shallow. Like, oh, yeah, that's, you know. But no, what he's saying is the old stuff doesn't fit you anymore. Like, it's comfortable because it's worn in and you like it and you're comfortable with what it is, but it doesn't fit you anymore. You put on the new thing because this is who you are now. And you know what? It might feel uncomfortable at first, but those can still become your favorite jeans. <laughs> There's no reason why they can't. But you have to wear them and walk around in them and be in them in order for them to become your clothes. So your changed heart and mind, they help you make some different decisions. And he gives them a warning there as well. He says, look, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. There's, there's this voice that's whispering in your ear. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. The voice is there. The things that we want are there. The desires of this life are there. But listen to what he says. You have to recognize it, okay? You have to recognize what it is if you're going to move against it. You have to recognize what that voice is, what those desires are, what they're saying, if you're going to move against it and live this new life. And I am convicted at this point in my sermon (laughs) about the amount of self-awareness that Paul is calling us to. I'm convicted by the amount of self-awareness that Paul is calling us to because I know for me, in my own struggle to live like Jesus, I fail often. And I know for me, there are a lot of times where I feel helpless to be the person that God, I feel like God is calling me to be. And there are times where I don't know how. And in those times, I embrace my weakness and my frailty. And I don't think that's a bad thing, but I, I hear Paul saying here, look, be smart. <laughs> think. What are you hearing? Where is that coming from? Why are you doing this? Why are you making the choice that you make? It's the mind and the heart that matter. And if they learn to recognize the lies and to name them, it is then that we reject them and have power over them through the grace of Jesus Christ. It's then. But if I ignore it and pretend like it's not there, it has control over me. It has control over me. So the question then is, am I willing to think about what is influencing me, and am I willing then to do something about it? Now listen, this is a struggle, and no one knows this better than Paul does. The, the struggle to identify behaviors and change them is one that is deeply personal to Paul. From Romans chapter 7, We know the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. Now, hear what he says here. He doesn't mean he doesn't know what he's doing. He's saying, I don't understand why this is happening. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, 
If I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another, another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And there's something that we need to see in the middle of this. Because it seems like on some level Paul is just throwing up his hands and saying, I can't do it. And you know what? He is throwing up his hands and saying he can't do it. But what has he done that we don't do? He has analyzed himself. And he says, there is a part of me that is sinful. And there is a part of me that I cannot overcome. And when I fail and I fall, that's not me. That is my sinful self. Now, how can he say that? That it's not him, it's his sinful self. Well, who is he? He's a child of God. He is under the grace of Jesus. He is forgiven and loved. And so he struggles against these things and he struggles against his tendencies. He knows what they are and he fights against them and he fails time and time and time again. But he knows that he is always going to fight against his sinful self. His weakness, his failure will always be in him, but that is not who he is. For he is someone who is saved by the grace of God. And he knows, and this is, this is important for us at this moment, he knows that living this life is not about him getting everything perfect. About him having, doing all the right things and skipping all the wrong things. He knows that this life is about more than that because who he is has been fundamentally changed. His heart, his mind, who he is, he is now in Jesus Christ. And now these things that would have once destroyed him are overwhelmed by the ocean of grace that Jesus offers. So let's, bet, let's look back in Ephesians, last section here. And here is where he really drives home the point, I think, about how all this changes for us from the inside. Starting in verse 25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. All right, if you had any question about whether it's about us changing what's inside of us or us just doing different things, this should have answered that question for you because he kills it in this last passage. Just kills it. And how does he do that? Well, he starts telling us what we should and should not be doing. But what are all those things? They are things that exist in relationship with others. It's about who you are in relationship with other people. And if you are going to begin to live your life like Jesus and make different choices, it starts on who you are with others and not who you are in private, interestingly enough. All these things are relational. For example, if you're going to live a life modeled after Jesus, Jesus models himself after a God who is, and this is a weird thing that we don't think about a lot, but God is kind. He is kind. We talk about him being loving, we talk about him being good, we talk about all those things, but kindness is a different virtue. 
that we kind of have ignored. But listen to this. This is from um, Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 through 24. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches, but let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For these I delight, declares the Lord. Kindness is a virtue we don't often consider, but it's central to who Jesus is, church. When Jesus saw the hurting, what did he do? When Jesus saw those who had been isolated from their communities, what did he do? When Jesus saw people that were in need, what did he do? He was kind to them. Yes, he was loving, and yes, he was good, but he was kind to them. Kindness is one of the purest forms of the imitation of God, that you carry yourself with an attitude of constant goodness to other people. Constant goodness to others. And how would it be if God were the kind of God who was unkind? If he made snide or bitter remarks about us, what would, our, what would our worship and prayer be like if we thought God had been like talking about us behind our backs and putting us down to others? How would we feel if we thought that we couldn't trust God to tell us the truth if he was always losing his temper with us? How do people feel about us when we do those things? So he gives us some very simple tips here. Simple. Number one, deal with your anger. Okay? Do not be angry people. Be kind people. Don't let, he says here, the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. And this is an interesting point. We've, we've talked about not being angry when you go to bed, you know, and done that in like marriage and relationship counseling. But, but his point is this. If you're willing to go to sleep angry, what does that mean? You're willing to hold on to whatever it is and leave it unresolved. You're willing to be angry into another day. And what's going to keep you from being angry through that day? Nothing. And when you hold on to that and you stay angry with someone, you are giving Satan a foothold in your life. He's got his toe in there. Right? Um, so you need, you need to deal with your anger. You need to tame it before you go to bed every day. And, and you need to get rid of all those things that follow anger. Uh, he talks about our words. He says, you know, and, and, and you know, we focus so much when we, when we look at like how we talk. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. It's like, oh, I can't say this word or that word. No, that's not what he means. What he means is the way you speak and the way you talk should encourage other people. And if you're saying anything that tears someone else down, then stop it. Just stop it. Because it is not building up the community. And then here's the one that blows my mind. All right? Are you ready? He says, don't steal. Obviously, don't steal. But why does he tell us not to steal? What you should do instead is go to work and make something so that you can help someone else. (laughs) You don't stop stealing because it's bad. It is. You stop stealing because this life that you're living doesn't allow you to be a good presence in someone else's life, so you stop it. And then you change what you're doing so that you have enough to give to other people. What do we do with all this information? Where do we go with this? There are some people that um, I have known over the years that get really frustrated with my teaching because I don't tell them exactly what to do. And I don't say, okay, so do these five things and you'll be happier, healthier, and your hair will grow back. I don't know, whatever it is. Um, But I think we can pull some very, very practical things out of this, okay? Number one, our hearts have to accept, our hearts have to accept that we are sinners in need of a Savior that we have been brought from an old life to a new life, that we were dead and trapped, and now we are alive and free. 
And it has to accept that because that makes our hearts open to God and to who he is. And then once our hearts are open, what can change? The way we think. Look, if I'm walking around this earth knowing how saved I am, that changes the way I look at everything, doesn't it? If I'm walking around and I know just how saved I am, then it changes the way I think. And when the way that I think changes, guess what else changes? What I do. How I treat other people. What people learn about God from me. As someone who claims to know Jesus. It's so easy, church, to make a Christian life about doing this and not doing that. But we miss the point. We miss the point. The point is that who you are is different because that's who Jesus is. He's a life changer. He's not a behavioralist. He's a life changer. And he is kind as God is kind and he comes in and he offers us what we don't deserve and what we should never have. But he gives it to us freely because he loves us and died for us and rose Again, and so we don't have to live the defeated life anymore. We live the victorious life. And we walk out as explorers of faith under a God who is limitless. And we change the world. Because we believe that the love of God in Jesus changes everything. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this day. We're thankful for your word that speaks to us and challenges us and gives us things to think about all the time. And God, I pray this morning that you would put on our hearts to start to think about why we do what we do. God, would you identify the behaviors and the motivations in us that are pulling us in other directions? God, will you help our hearts to be open so that our mind can see and be renewed? And may we be different people, not, God, because of what we do, but because of who we are. And may we relentlessly love this world and those who are lost and in need of a Savior as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have any needs for prayer or encouragement this morning, you want to know this God who loves you in a really amazing way. We invite you to come forward as we stand singing this song together.